वेलकम टू सेंटॉक द सेंटॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द पास्ट लेड बेयर विल थिंक अबाउट द कॉन्टेक्सट लाइट पास्ट एंड प्रॉब्लम्स विद अ परसेप्शन ऑफ इट इज हिस्ट्री अ सीरीज ऑफ डेटा पॉइंट्स वॉट इज कॉन्टेक्सट how does the architecture of our brain influence what we perceive of the past how individually variable is this perception could different historians genuinely see different things while looking at the same thing how does the debris of the past travel with us in time both individually and socially are certain beliefs hardwired how objective is historiography how can narratives be known to be true how are buildings different as historical artifacts and what is the long term future of the past we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr orpon banerji he is a neuroscientist with primary interest in sensory perception and cognition and how they change with aging he works at the national brain research center in manisar dr obijit paul he is an anthropologist with a focus on south asia particularly on issues related to globalization and its fallouts he teaches at uc berkeley and dr pushkar sohoni he is a historian specializing in architectural history He teaches at Aisar Pune. So Pushkar, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Maybe with something specific, as opposed to something too general. But to ask the specific question of how does one begin to make sense of something? In your case, a material thing, an object, a building, a coin. Pick, pick anything that comes to mind. We know almost nothing about it. at the moment of encounter at the moment that you first observe it stumble upon it accidentally or whatever how does it go from there what is that meta process what's that process of framing it conceptualizing it categorizing it um how does that work that 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 somewhat more tentative early phase uh, talk us through it and maybe there'll be issues there that will be of relevance to this question so when somebody comes across material that we know nothing about the two things that help us understand where it belongs in time are context and the object itself by context of course everybody knows context in uh, terms of archaeology where a certain layer at which you find things can be dated because that layer contains other things that are firmly dated and that kind of context is very useful in placing things in time but the object itself uh has to be studied by an archaeologist or a historian and the tool for them is really to have a mental repertoire of similar objects we learn by comparison we learn by noticing differences and having this kind of library in your mind of objects that are similar or dissimilar being able to weed things out by saying these things are not like this object at all and therefore we need not consider them and recalling other objects which look vaguely familiar 
and those might be objects about which we know something for sure. Uh, making these kinds of comparisons between the known and the unknown is how we infer a lot of information about various kinds of uh, material finds. Of course, all these processes have their limitations and are imprecise, but then the production of knowledge itself is an approximation, and therefore I don't think we can uh, necessarily do any better, no matter how much technology improves. So as you think about your own work, Pushkar, what might be the most alien material object that you may have encountered, which you had maybe the most difficulty placing or categorizing in an approach or a schema of this kind? Uh, the most difficult objects are the ones which uh, have a set of features that do not fit the convention of those objects. So, for example, copper plate charters, which were a very common way of making land grants in India. Copper plate charters. Yes. So, as opposed to a, a court document, what a royal court would do was issue you a set of copper plates on which... Which is like literally a copper foil with inscriptions on Well, it. a thick plate, uh, more than a foil, right. on which d details of your land grant or uh, other kinds of grants were actually inscribed. Mm -hmm. And this is a way of doing things that disappears around 1300, 1400, because we have the introduction of paper in chancelleries throughout South Asia in a big way. And paper has a number of advantages. Uh, it's highly mobile, it's light, uh, you can produce it in volumes, it's uh, cost effective. Uh, of course, it has one great disadvantage is that it's a lot more perishable than copper plates are. Right. And so in the 16th, 17th century... So do those paper charters survive today? Yes, a number of them do, but a number of them don't. Right. But not that all copper plate charters survive either. Either. <laughs> uh, because copper being valuable also can be repurposed towards other things. And in any case, uh, you know, uh, uh, artifacts tend to get lost over time. Uh, even copper does disintegrate, even if it's uh, slower than paper. In any case, once you start finding in the 17th and 18th centuries, copper plate charters with inscriptions in Persian, you know something is terribly off. This doesn't fit the paradigm of copper plates before a certain date when yeah. Persian is not widespread. Yeah. But yet the language of these charters seems to be that of 14th and 15th century Persian firmans. Uh, the orthography of the script itself is from the 17th and 18th century. So here you have an object that embodies uh, attributes and qualities from three very distinct periods. And what kind of sense do you make of it? You know comparable objects with these attributes from three different periods, and yet they've all coalesced together. And then you have to imagine a much greater narrative in which people who've received paper firmans in the 16th century are having them re-inscribed at their own cost in copper in the 18th century. So they're facsimiles in a sense. They're essentially facsimiles, and they're facsimiles done in a medium which was popular a long time ago, That's so in the 12th or 13th century. So you start looking at why these practices persist, why people are so invested in spending money in creating copper plate charters of paper firmans. What this means, what do they remember of the 12th century? Is it because their neighbors actually have old uh, copper plate charters that you have to keep up with them, right. but not with the latest technology by antiquating your own past? Right. And so it raises a lot of questions um, throughout time. Again, it depends on what the source of value is. Absolutely. What... 
Right. And so again, a strange object that doesn't fit a rubric nicely is always a good way to probe deeper into past societies and understand exactly what they were trying to do, what they were trying to think, and what their aspirations were. In many ways, uh, archaeology has often been called uh, fossilized human behavior, and we have to treat artifacts not necessarily as uh, valuable objects in their own right, but valuable because they embody this kind of information. They carry fossilized behavior or traces of fossilized behavior. And that's what a historian is always looking for, trying to understand. You're able to make the past come past alive in a sense. societies. Yeah. But we only create representations of the past. You can never recreate the past. Um, and that any recreation of the past, even the one that you've just done for us, is is only an approximation, isn't it? Absolutely right. Uh, I think all uh, knowledge-making processes are approximations. We try to grasp at the truth. We try to grapple with things we see. We try to make explanations that will join the dots. But at best, they can always only be approximations. Where do you come to on this question, or now, obviously not the specific question of copper charters, but this question of encountering either objects or facts or percepts or whatever, um, which you know very little about or which is an alien encounter or a generally novel encounter. Now, at the cranial, brain, biophysical kind of level, um, how would you schematize it? What, what would you say happens? Is it is it a form of pattern fitting? Is it a form of what exactly happens? Like what, what would a neuroscientist such as you say? Yeah, so there are multiple ways to think about or conceptualize uh, what he's uh, Pushkar just very nicely illustrated in one domain because uh, uh, in neuroscience itself, I mean, you can use this concept or use this concept in different ways. I mean, one concept I could think of is that, you know, when we uh, look at our world, our sensory perception and um, this, we think in terms of the this hypothesis of predictive coding, where anything informative that you learn, essentially in the current instance of time, uh, it's the more informative ones are the ones where you have a violation of expectation, where you have a surprise. And if you see even uh, the core tenets of uh, information theory back even um, which developed by Shannon uh, and uh, how it forwarded, it actually quantitated the idea of surprise. So, Anything which is, you know, seemingly same, which remains constant is not informative. When it, there is a change, like he said that the copper charters, which had like, you know, letterheads of the current recent most uh, event, but uh, they are totally dissimilar to, or they have a script of, or the idea was to go in the past. So that essentially is something that a violation of prediction, right? So what he, he it had. certainly qualify as a surprise. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and if you look into it as from the, so there are two, now we can think about in it in two ways. So the surprising is informative? Yes, Yes, yeah. surprising is informative. So you can think about it in two ways. One definite way is that how Pushkar, uh, as a historian, looked at this and then he kind of chartered his own sort of knowledge uh, gathering course uh, by virtue of this, you know, using this as an element of surprise and kind of deconstruct or reverse engineered the theories behind it, coming to the interpretation of what would have been the mindset of the person doing it. Right. For what reasons, uh, right? Now, now, 
that is one way, of course. The second way you can think about it is that when you are actually in the visual world, let's say today, for example, the most amount of informative theory or information that your brain will gather are when there will be more amount of surprise in it. So, I mean, I am coming to Bombay. I mean, I will expect warm weather. If I, When I landed from the flight, I if I have sudden bout of cold, that would be very surprising, right? And that would be a new information. Oh, Bombay, December, it can be cold too. So you can, uh, you know, uh, think in these two different ways. So it appears at two different levels. I think you kind of get the two different levels I'm talking about. So at one level, you are talking about as an agent, you are actually gathering new information or how knowledge is created. The other way, your biological system or the physiological system. Which but surprise, is, surprise or porn is in relation to an expectation. Yes. Um, it, it could be tacit. It could be it could be something which is maybe at the lower states and, and some kind of an architecture in the brain. But it's always in relation to something, isn't it? Absolutely. So, I mean, in this case, in the physiological sense, the surprise would be, you know, if, if you put it in terms of hierarchies now, in terms of the brain, if you build into the hierarchical structure of the brain or the processing that goes on in the brain, uh, you can think about in this way that, you know, if, if I am showing simply a flash of light to you constantly at, you know, at a certain frequency and suddenly at a, of a certain color and I throw a certain different light at you, right? Yeah, and you either change the intensity or the color. Or the intensity or the color. And that sort of, you know, and if you think about this flash of light and as elemental sort of features in the brain are being encoded in a very lower level. Right. Now we are talking about level as a computer scientist would. And uh, then the only information that will go to the higher level when you have a change, not the sort of, you know, repetitive patterns that is constantly occurring. but when And in this specific context, Orpon, what would be make it more specific, what would be lower level and higher level? So lower level would be something like, you know, color would be lower level versus something like the uh, picture of somebody you can uh, remember that which has is full color, it will be higher level. So the face of the person can be in higher level. Right. Uh, and or it, it can be even higher level can be the scene, like you remember the person in a certain context, like whether you were happy that day, that will be even much more higher level. So you can uh, deconstruct these levels at these different higher, lower. I mean, these are all again, figurative ways that we kind of use as neuroscientists. I'm not sure if that is even the right way. Yeah, yeah. so but one in a manner of speaking rather than... It, it it's, a, it's more, yeah. So it, it it's so some people, I mean, the way we think about it is that the architecture at a lower level is much more easier to understand because it is probably at a pretty particular set of areas. And when it goes to the higher level, there will be more amount of parallel processing, more amount of complexities will get added to the system. Not to say that the lower level processing is least complex, but compared to the other ones... They and again, as a matter of fact... Uh, you you spoke about this idea of expectation. So is the brain also always predicting what the likely next state? Absolutely. Could be? I mean, absolutely. I mean, and, and one of the main strong, like you know, current theories that 
the way we kind of you know understand brain processing is brain is always in its constant state of prediction i mean prediction is something the purpose of life if you if you put it that way so the brain if, is in the business of prediction it's always predicting it's always predicting yes yes but these are near term states these are like how 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 far good, out does it go in time good question right so that that is something so you remember like it can go out as far as you want it to be hmm. right so for example uh, some of these conversations we are having like like for example i visited it'll go as far out as whatever we have an expectation for so whatever whatever we have an expectation for you predict for absolutely but you know like you in the beginning you said like how much amount of time do you data points do you have to go back in history yeah to consider that so that itself is a very open ended question right so uh, i mean do we go like from the history to 2 year old maybe some elements we do like the way we kind of utter certain words like the way we kind of learned how to speak was not really understanding the language we probably started uttering by mimicking our parents like yeah. their gestures uh, we tried to sort of you know mimic their lip movement so i mean there is an amount of coding or learning with how we also move our lips to that level of you know um so there is a memory in that also i mean you can call it lip muscle memory or whatever you can call it yeah. so there is a memory at that level so it depends on really what memory you are talking about um and i mean of course there are certain instances i mean great way to see this is indeed the case are certain case studies where you have some people have some brain injuries or there are some parts of the brain resected like you know you have these movies based on these also like there is a famous case, patient named hm who has contributed to the development of our understanding of memory whose entire hippocampus which is the area that formed memories was you know resected so what he could not form is new memories but he could remember from a certain past certain past which is like some threshold you can say so i think what you kind of hinted as is there a threshold to it so, or so did hm have expectations was it in the brain in the business of predicting that, that expectation couldn't take into the it couldn't form new expectations as they would say right it could only dip into that bank memory yes. bank which was which long time back up to, to a certain off. age right yeah. exactly exactly yeah. exactly so yeah so that's in a nutshell is what i would like to say on this yeah where are you on this obijit there are we've obviously heard two different planks you touch real things you deal with very 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 real things where is this element of prediction expectation what what are patterns for you um and how does one deal with or schematize or theorize or understand things that one knows almost nothing about ipso facto a priori um would love to hear you sure well i mean let me begin with the schematization part first let, let kind of take it from there partly because uh, the discipline from which such schematizations especially in the field of anthropology and its highly specialized form ethnography comes is through touching live things as you mentioned and one of the critical things that actually happens there is the understanding or the lack of it thereof as to what is out there which historically created very bad moments because anthropology is founded as a schematized uh, discipline as an area of inquiry uh, as an area of um, objective science even 
to an extent because it all takes us back to times when you have you know people studying phrenology yeah like a certain understanding of how difference is constructed right? yeah so all of that gave obviously the field a pretty bad name up until i would say roughly about the mid 20th century when reflexive forms of thinking started you know to take shape and place in the field and so that actually then put people through questioning as to the very foundations the very schematics we're talking about as to how to think about the relationship between diachronic synchrony yeah right i mean not just to understand a problem in a certain predictive behavior or a moment of predictive behavior in time but also how is it manifesting in real time so that's something that started happening with anthropology in the 50s and the 60s and there were so many other branches that it sort of you know uh, sort of broke into and then uh, came feminist and other forms of anthropology where people started really questioning some of the even more basic foundations of say what makes a human because anthropology after But all these is are, a study these of these are these are new lenses and new filters on the same object or percept or are these new objects No right you're no, just looking no. at them with with a very different lens every yeah, time yeah it's it's a, it's looking at that see i mean the lens with which you look at creates a new object it's in that sense because the field itself has not been uh, redefining itself beyond the scope of study of human in a certain cultural and an uh, ethnographic context so what does the past mean to you well the past in this particular case i would say uh, if you if if you're looking at ethnography you it would if you're doing ethnography then uh, the past is all over the place in the very fact of sort of you know interacting with a uh, particular object in this case a human object a human subject as well where the past, past is all over the place the past is all over the place because it comes through language it comes through memory it comes through recreation of stories right not just like stories that so people say so when you say, say passes all over the place you mean that it's not one uniform background there is no one uniform background but there can be patterns because you also raise a question of patterns so one of the easier ways is to i mean that's the older school of anthropology as well where they would want to see patterns in culture which also led to dead ends because there are so many ways to define and structure and and there's no periodic that, table of patterns exactly, that define all human beings exactly so <laughs> yeah. one of the i think uh, more interesting ways to look at the past in anthropology is that it's a troublesome place particularly because of all the work that has been done before in redef- in, in 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 structuring the past so in other words uh so when you look at say a temple architecture in bengal let's say now what you look at is obviously a certain historical data point you know the time at which it was made and so on and so forth that's a diachronic part but the diachronic synchronic part would be a, would be like who made it right how did it even occur in that particular point in time and why is it that we are actually interested in some of those questions is it going to give us new knowledge is it going to give us something more predictive in our understanding of you know a historical past which is also living in the present because one of the things i think There's we've been discussing the non-bare parts the things that that relate to um power structures that would be politics, always um yes interrelationships values customs those sorts of things and that, rituals and so how are those traces left on the temple 
How do you know what they were? An anthropologist would know that uh, without the help of a certain archaeological sort of, you know, uh, line of inquiry. But an anthropologist would then try to recreate some of the elements of that past. Through, through reading of the, texts through, and living well, traditions. Right. And... I mean, through through people who are telling the stories about a particular uh, sort of, you know, relic or a site or etc. Because that site can only be touched. And what, reached... if, what if none of that is available? And what if it's not that... a living temple, but well, it's a ruin? And then reliance on uh, linguistic memory becomes very, very critical. There would be many, many instances where only the stories exist, which now are telephone because, you know, they've been told and retold and uh, sometimes they serve as uh, identity of a certain cultural community and are so on and bare, so forth. Are bare ruins of interest to anthropologists? No, they're not. Only when they come through stories. Yeah. They, an anthropologist is not designed, structured, to go and sort of in a carbon date, a particular sort of context, as you said. But an anthropologist would learn from uh, that kind of a place, that kind of a sort of in a schematics, if you will, and then try to use it to understand how uh, the present, right, is actually rethinking the past. And so it's, the, it's a very, it's a tricky kind of, a situation today because uh, most... But if you look at the past right. from the present right. always, right. and the present is always changing, right. and its values right. and so on, uh -huh. then so the, past. the past is always changing. Of course, yeah. So <laughs> you, you there, feel, is, you there is a question about if is the past is, is scurrying along the lines of the past even going to get us anywhere because the past is the future. So, but what, I mean, what about what about this? I mean, at least I don't look up, look down upon that too much. This somewhat more positivist read of what the past is. This relatively more unemotional, innocent desire to know. Okay, what happened? What were the facts and figures? Where do you go on that, uh, Pushkar? That that was a point in the past where uh, historians, both textual and material historians were looking for very objective clues by which you date things. But I think history as a discipline has also had a number of self-critiques by which you position yourself in time. You have to understand your interpretations as part of your context. And therefore, you have to understand that the same data or the same points of data which a historian in the 1940s might have looked at will be read and understood and interpreted very differently in the 1970s and in the 2000s. And therefore, one has to leave open the possibility that we ourselves will be judged 50 years from now. And so... No, but what if you're looking back on 1900 from 1940 and 1970 and so, so history writing is as much about the period about which the history is written as, as much as it is the period is in which it is written. It and so you're really looking, when you read histories, you're reading two periods at the same time. And you work with aging, Orpon. Now, to the extent that one analogizes this to just human life and aging and looking back at something. And now, obviously, there's an element of revision and you keep going back at things and, you know, you, sometimes you airbrush them and this and that. Um, does this make sense to you? Is this an analogy? Do we recollect the same event, the same object, the same moment in past at different points in time in life? And how stable, unstable, variable, constant is that picture? Uh, now, I know it depends on the exact specific thing, but to the extent I request you to generalize it, uh, how variable is that? Yeah, so in, in case of aging, what at least our research has shown, as our group's research, uh, as well as some other people as well, that, you know, 
the way we understand aging in very colloquial sort of way that aging is a structural change so we degrade along with age we do things more slowly uh, a rather sort of you know unspoken thing about aging is there are certain benefits to aging also so for example we are able to integrate things better like there is this old adage older and wiser our fluid intelligence uh, this seemingly doesn't change sometimes gets better uh so there are this kind of very specific functions which no, but we, on this specific question which both abhijit and i'm Pushkar, coming to it yeah. i'm coming to it with that example so we uh, sort of you know so certain things remain invariant we kind of look at it in a slightly different way this temporal context is aging so one hand side we have this something which is degrading over time versus something which is remaining constant something which is invariant so our questions are trying to sort of you know target this what are the sort of you know changes or the constructs which allows these invariants to be facilitated in the first place by the same structures which is something similar to you know you want to sort of you know if you if you go to the history so is that domain or vector specific like this business of what remains invariant and what changes uh, by domain if you mean age specific is that what you are no so what i mean that if i need to recollect something back from my childhood at the age of 11 or whatever no it is very general yeah so it's not domain specific in that sense yeah mm. so but there is a i mean you know the question is what i am talking about this kind of what we more specifically scientifically we say compensation or the compensatory kind of uh, benefits of aging uh, do they uh, kind of you know happen at like when you are 18 to 80 what happens then when you are 2 to 18 or 2 to 10 right where where we have a phase of maturation um, so aging is a bit of an enigma in that sense because it has these phases the maturation and this lifespan aging and what we definitely do know that the main way to understand aging would be to understand how this flexible behaviors change with aging like how you can like you know adapt how you can change how you can integrate so i think to the extent and i don't know whether i'm dumbing this down too much so for historians chess pushkar mm-hmm. uh, speaks about historians as a category as an expert class looking back at a point in time or a certain phenomena or an event or whatever in 1900 from 1950 1970 in the year 2000 and if you if i were to analogize it to say that you know an individual in his or her life thinks back to the time when he or she was 10 years old and again some phenomena or event at the age of 40 60 and 90 now in these two contexts one is very individual and personal and the other which is a little bit more social um is the nature of what the question of what is past are they do they have the same balance do they have it will differ right so it because the context now has changes obviously right you are not like you know uh, what you will let's say you had some like you know fight your with your friend close friend like you know 5 years back the way you would look at it now and way you will look at it 10 years down the line will be very different right you will have a totally different view about it i mean that's how we change right because we are also flexibly changing so Then, what is a rigorous version of that statement so what degrades and what doesn't degrade right so so what degrades is uh, your you know there are certain 
fibers, which is these axonal fibers, which communicate information, which is connection between two uh, like hotspots of the brain, which are modules of the brain. You can think of them as wires or cables, right? Sure. And these wires, you can think about the way they carry information that carry information pretty fast. So when, the facts become hazier, the emotional intensity uh, no, becomes com- weaker. I'm coming to that. So the physical sort of the like, you know, speed of how the information being communicated to between these brain areas, they become slower with aging. Right. Okay. So that certainly becomes slower. And that's a physical sort of, you know, uh, structural change. But on the other hand, what you see, and this is where function comes in, how brain activities change, how they kind of cohere together. Like you said, like the past is something sort of, you know, how you see the past is also dependent on the present, right? So in a sense, they are coupled kind of a system. So similarly, the how brain areas are coupled together, that remains sort of, you know, they can change too. And uh, to over come the structural decline and that's one of the you know hypothesis that a lot of people are working with and coming back to this uh, sort of you know uh, view of history let's say put it in that way I would say that you know uh, certainly this is one way to look at it for example if you change relationships how you change with age another thing that we often ignore that your brain's emotional state or uh, a basic sort of cognitive state which also changes so beyond all the sensory perception and you know responding to stimulus there is a part of the brain that is also beyond this stimulation so what we call I mean for the last 10-15 years we have been calling it the resting state of the brain mm-hmm. and uh, how this change basic metabolic state of the brain changes along with age that's something that we are trying to find out in the lab right so how that change and that's a good medium or that's a good sort of a window you can think of to look into this because that is unlikely going to be dependent on a specific stimulation it's a domain general right. so to speak way to look at aging so however so, there so the resting state and up influencing what your sensitivity to absolutely events in general how your resting state has changed will change how you are emotionally connecting with people how your sort of it can be a marker of your mental health uh, it can be a marker of how flexible you are to adaptive behaviors. So resting state can, like, you know, it is a domain general sort of a concept in that sense. Can you I... think of an equivalent concept, Obajit, to this resting state in as far as studying societies, groups, ethnic groups go? Yes, I think there could be a possible analogy here in terms of particularly, so let me give an example. For example, uh, when you are uh, looking at particular communities who say, for example, have lost a craft, this is something that can be studied and has been studied historically. So what happens there is you have a certain recollection of memory as in a very active form. And then that goes over a period of time. Like, you know, you start talking to people, you start collecting stories, you reach a certain data point where you are veritably sort of, you know, into a place where you can actually reconstruct a certain memory of a craft, right? But at the same time, you also realize that 
while you're reconstructing this through a certain uh, sort of a telling and retelling of people's linguistic memories of, about a certain craft. The craft itself is not there. The physical activity of the thing I mean, the praxis is, absent. is lost. The praxis yeah. is lost. And that's where you feel like there is a certain, I mean, that's a very interesting sort of an angle that uh, Orpon is uh, sort of described uh, a little while so ago. So narratives about, alone and stories alone don't, but is the memory lost or the what is... Well, if the language the is content? lost, then the memory is lost. I mean, the, you cannot have... You know, I think not to go too far deep into early linguistic, uh, both anthropology and semiotics, you know, there's a whole notion of aphasia. Yeah. With aphasia, with a loss of language, would also come a certain loss of memory. Maybe not a loss of musculature, right? But definitely a certain loss of communication, which will then have to be reconstructed vehemently. The reason I'm referring to this craft angle is because of the Oloni example that I was talking about like uh, a couple of days ago and also today. Right. Like only with a couple of two, one or two speakers of a particular uh, tribe in say Northern California, you then want to reconstruct like 100 and 250 speakers of that particular language. There you have to employ schematics, there you have to employ, you know, all kinds of predictive and all kinds of subjunctive elements into it. But what happens is, there you, is you, there you, is a certain you, loss. Yeah, you end up reconstructing a weaker, flatter version of a more full-bodied living culture. Society. It's an interventionist regenerative project. Yeah. Right? It's also it actually is called but, a revitalization project, which is a great thing. If, I mean, I do not. I'm not criticizing that kind of a scenario or a situation. It is actually something that is needed, but there is a genuine sense of like a gap, something that you cannot do much about anymore. The idea that something has decayed, right? For whatever historical and other societal and community and other oriented reasons. But that is something that is very visible. It is a real-time thing that you can do in a social lab as opposed to like, you know, a biological lab. Yes, Arpan. So that's very interesting. I mean, the reverse, what you said, hmm. is also true. And people have found that of the language and the relationship with um, memory. Memory. So uh, what people have at actually in a cohort in Hyderabad, hmm. they have demonstrated that people who are bilinguals have a much more later onset of dementia. Yeah. So, yes. so, so that's um, and uh, and not only that, I think in Alzheimer's and, and, disease. And that is a rigorous enough result. Yes, it was published in one of the good journals, yes, uh, best journals of yeah. neurology. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second thing why, that... Why do you think that happens? It's a simple... It's, it's like a double binding? Like you... Yeah, you, so it's... it's you it's, remember it, something in two ways? So when ways. you talk about, you know, Alzheimer's disease in general, like on any disorders of memory, there is this famous sort of, you know, adage like use it or lose it. Like, yeah. So the more you use the brain, the idea is that linguistic sort of, you know, acumen in two languages or maybe multiple more is increasing the resources or it's like basically some kind of an exercise of the brain. So it's making like... Uh, making the brain fitter. Making the brain fitter, absolutely. And it is another sort of, you know, telltale sign of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it's not only the memory is lost, also ability to actually coherently speak is also lost. So in a sense that you make less of sense of what you are telling. Because... When? 
in Alzheimer's disease, yeah, early yeah. onset oh, of oh. Alzheimer's disease, you can. This is one more symptomatic feature. So, I mean, totally agree with you. No, yeah. that's a great point. In fact, not only is the uh, language ability affected, also short-term memory is affected in Alzheimer's. And so, I think what happens with, uh, if I may run with this uh, for a little while, with a revitalization kind of a project, I see that as, as a collective Alzheimer's of sorts. So the aphasia part is something that can be uh, sort of you know, built into uh, this particular conversation from this particular you know, uh, angle and this particular moment in time that you lost a language, right, that you kind of were born with and you also maybe to an extent acquired because we all, we're constantly acquiring a language within a language, right? The whole sort of in a metaphorical universe or the multiverse that we make. And if that is somehow taken away because the speakers don't exist anymore or there are only one or two speakers or maybe three, it's a tremendous pressure on, uh, on the past on, on, on how to sort of, you know, uh, think about your present because your past has almost slipped away. Just to bind that conversation in here. How do you make sense of some of this, Pushkar? And I ask you this because outside of accidents, you've obviously seen a very, very wide range of historical artifacts. And if one were to ask this question of how does something remain living, what comes to mind for you? I, I think uh, there are historical forms which survive, but every generation receives them very differently. And so while we look at things that look historical in that sense, we might say, oh, we've used this for 2,000 years continuously. Uh, every but it's been regenerating itself. It completely Renewing is being itself. Uh, reinvented by every generation, at least the understanding. So do we stick with the form and say it is stable? Or do we go with the understanding and say it's ever-changing? And I think there needs to be this distinction in terms of what constitutes, uh, uh, you know, history of the because past. Something could be anachronistic and stuck in the past. Ab absolutely, and something I mean, could be uh, living and adapted. So I'm trying to think of, so for example, uh, Victorian neo-Gothic architecture, which is invented in the 19th century uh, by uh, English nationalists, who say enough of this neoclassical stuff as as an island race is what they're calling themselves, we really need to affirm our identity in an architectural form which we believe is native to our place. Uh, but that and, is a pastiche, no? Yes, it, it is a pastiche, but they think it's being as authentic, but it's a reinterpretation. There is no going back to the 12th century. Yeah. And so you do but have... instead of coming up with something... A new, but again, that's your point that there is. So, so you you still have to hearken back to something. No, but reviving a form doesn't mean you are back to the same thing. Yeah, it is a new uh, spin. It is a completely new understanding. It's a compound. It's a new thing. Right, and so I think uh, I mean uh, anthropology comes across this a lot, where uh, uh, mental artifacts of the past are what they deal with. We deal with physical artifacts. Uh, we sometimes deal with intentions. When How are buildings different? Buildings, uh, Bu buildings they're supposed to live forever, though, they could potentially. Buildings embody two kinds of uh, knowledge. One is the kind of intended knowledge of the patron or the architect who is trying to make a statement stand up in um, solid material. And the other thing uh, architecture often will embody are hidden fingerprints of the people who are building it. Mm-hmm. 
And so you might have a building that formally looks the same as another building. But once you start looking at cross sections of it, you realize it's put together, it's built very differently. And so there are voices that are dominant voices, which are to, the formal voices. Don't you have to dismember the building to see that? Well, sometimes you do. Sometimes you can see fingerprints even on the outside. Right. Uh, but again, I mean, it's like a postmortem, right? Does a person have to be dissected in order to find out what the disease is? But you can do limited biopsies of buildings too. Uh, when do buildings die? I think buildings die when they do not feature in public imagination anymore. When people cannot apply a value to it, people cannot uh, uh, reinvent the story of a building. It's dead. Uh, in the present, not as a museological artifact. but Right. But I, I think things need to be continuously reinvented and reinterpreted. Otherwise, uh, you know, they might stand up, but then a lot of things standing around us are quite dead. In, in your experience and on the basis of what you've seen going back several centuries, what has stood for the longest and is there a common thread? And obviously when I say that, it, there's an implicit thing that that's somehow a virtue, maybe it isn't, so you should correct me. Uh, no, what stands is actually a communal memory of things. So once people associate a narrative or a story with a given site, it doesn't matter if the form is stable or unstable, it might have changed completely. To them, that place means something. And it's this making of meaning which is important architecturally and historically. So if you take something like the Mumbadevi Temple, where there is a whole story of how this is the founding place of the city of Mumbai, the temple that you see is actually a very late temple. But the story takes you back much earlier and that story holds everything together. So the story is antiquated. The story right. somehow goes back into Absolutely. the distant past. And, and stories keep things alive. Uh, not piles of stone. Uh, piles of stone help to keep the stories alive, but stories are the things that keep uh, communities so, so alive. So you would give primacy to the story and the narrative um, as, as the emotional bind, as the carrier, as um, opposed to just the and, material and, object. And, and so sites and buildings, uh, historical architecture that survives is because there is a story that resonates with the people who are interested in keeping it. If you don't have that story, people will say, go ahead and demolish it. And therefore, when you look at material history and juxtapose that with, let's call it art history or whatever, you know, the the texts around it, um, the, so now the buildings that have survived the longest or whatever you've encountered and to the extent that there are patterns and studies on it, are they oftentimes, oftentimes not as rigorous a link as you would like if you were a physics person, but are they oftentimes accompanied with texts and uh, other other kind of corpora that go with it and have lived with it and sustained it over a period? Ideally, yes. But even in the absence of texts, you will have communal imagined memories that sustain yeah, a so, place. Okay, so text includes texts and written texts as well as stories. Oral, right. oral, oral history, oral traditions. Um, I'll play a little bit of foil to this. It's a brilliantly staged, structured argument that he just made, but I'm a little... Um, uh, a bit of a thinking around the question about when does this story historically become political? It has become political in the past because the very moment you have a string of stories, an imagined set of stories or a reinvented set of stories and or both has created, can create uh, tremendous moments of aggression and which is one reason why the, in Western epistemology, community and communal 
are such feared words, right? I don't have to go back to 1930s Nazi reconstruction of the past, which I think has probably been all on our minds because the past has its own very complicated, extremely sort of ugly face to show us as well. That's because stories are more malleable than material uh, objects themselves are. Uh, but the story made the material object as well. Right. The very fact that a blonde, blue-eyed, whatever, I mean, the race, the whole idea of, you know, this fetishizing of the Aryan race, yeah. the very idea of the fetishizing of a certain Eastern Tibetan tantric culture, right, through total authoritarian power and domination. It wasn't built in a day. It was built through manufactured stories. So stories have a manufacturing unit as well, right? So not all stories can be necessarily, especially stories that are built around community and identity, can go haywire quite quickly. It can go south quite quickly. And that is not just the story of uh, the of Europe. I mean, we have, we have our own stories too here, right? It's not so much of a foil. I just thought like, you know, uh, maybe uh, sort of have us point to that direction. Yes. I mean, I, I think all stories are in general political. I think there is no story that is without politics. If you think about, you know, the fairy tales of like when the, the grandma's fairy tales, there would be a king, there would be an evil minister, there would be somebody, a villain who wants to grab power and there will be some... And or, an orpon political meaning what? Like what? what, what yes, yeah, so what's that the, what's is the, the crux register? of the question. So the, so the politics is the context. I think that's what gives the context to these stories. I, I don't think politics is anything else other than the context we live in, right? So I think that, I mean, other than the politics, if you, if you put it like that, then without context, there is no story. So you have to have the politics imprinted in it. Now, what you are making an additional point, I think, is that... Um, uh, that can go haywire, particularly in relation to, and I totally agree with and that. They can and be co-opted. They can be co-opted. They can be, and that's why we should be careful about. I mean, particularly, which probably only reinforces the point that Pushkar is making that they're so very powerful. Exactly. <laughs> yes. In rather, a different way. Yes. Rather, they're so it. effective. Yes. Yes. And absolutely. I, I think one of the great virtues of uh, stories is they do not have to have a basis in physical reality. Which is people why. can fly, people can appear in multiple places at the same time. Everything that are, you know, real human memories will not allow us to do uh, can be constructed. Which is the reason, Pushkar, why, which is the link in a way between myth and history, right? Like you, you can, to the extent that you can have imagination and to the extent the stories are effective and powerful and enchanting, they happen to travel in time, they, but the moment they are historicized or attempted to be historicized, you then go back and say, all right, show me where that building was or show me where it happened. And then they look what traces and proves. Would you agree? Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, but, uh, you know, on the one hand, while myths and history are natural enemies of each other, they also feed into each other they in a big each way. Other. They reinforce each and, other. Therefore, a good historian cannot discount myths because there is a kernel of truth to them. And a good mythologist should never discount history because it provides the kind of context, the politics, for why those stories exist in the first place. And why they've survived over such a long period of time. Now, to, for you, Arupan, what is a story for you as a neuroscientist? Because uh, it, it, is, it is a carrier of values, it is a carrier of beliefs, ethics, 
morals, uh, relationships, all, all kind of values, more generally speaking. Now, to the extent that one has a reductive biophysical view of what brain is, now I don't know whether you cringe at the mention of the word mind as a, as a neuroscientist, but to the extent that there are you know shared beliefs or whatever, or beliefs even at the very personal level, how are they wired? Are they hardwired? Uh, how do they change the lens with which we see things, perceive things, cognize things? Uh, take us through that uh, in a so, manner. So I mean, that you I would say, I would talk about it in, again in, from two different perspectives. One is a personal story, right? I think that's what you wanted to hear. So the personal part of it, the way I visualize it, is it's a journey of how I sort of see myself as an. Uh, sort of an interactive being with the environment, with human beings, and how I learn from it. I, I mean, certain way I used to think about politics has changed over the course of years. Some ways I have, uh, you know, uh, ways I used to think about certain political figures have changed over the years. Some way I could see what actions would have been done by some person, a protagonist in history. That has also changed over the years. And some of it, of course, believe it or not, may have been influenced by the way of my studies in neuroscience or the more about uh, the science that we think about our cognition, our learnings. I mean, certainly, I mean, there is no doubt to that, that, uh, you know, it reshapes you, it changes you. From a more sort of, you know, scientific side of things, like the way the entire community is building a story right now, I would say, like any other sort of natural sciences, neuroscience uh, kind of, you know, got into understanding things in a very reductionist mode. Like, you know, you break down things into modules as uh, like, you know, you if you want to understand vision, or if, which means that if you want to understand the brain processes when you are seeing something, like as I am interacting with you, the visual scene, I would actually have to break it down to something simple, like your color, the outline of your face. And if I study each of these things, if I design a lab experiment, I can study so there each are of many, the... many different modes and they yes. can all be and analyzed. Then, then the belief is that the belief system, how it worked, is that somehow you can individually study that somehow I can manage them, add them back together. So that it's the binding agent, it's the it's... so in a in a sense, I would say, I mean, well, it is not really the binding problem. It's it's I think a uh, addition problem <laughs> that you know, how do I add these complex understandings together into so what is that what is that operation so all these different modes come in color smell whatever height length edges absolutely intensity whatever your emotional state etc and then whatever this belief is your belief about whatever this kind of a setup is, whatever whatever so uh, we don't know so, so, so what so is that operation so i think the operation you are referring to is how it builds up the actual narrative right yeah, actual like what you the, see whatever the output is right so we don't know so the the answer to that is we don't know <laughs> right so that's why the trouble with that reductionist approach so what the field is kind of a uh, kind of changing in kind of taking the whole thing so what would be an example of that so like for example we start like if you want to now is it likely that there was somebody like pushkar mm -hmm. now pushkar is a great guy but somebody with a very different background and so on and they turn up at the same place as historians and they see totally different things because of different beliefs different training background yes uh, let's yes, just let's just say they happen to be as dissimilar as they could be 
but with very similar theoretical apparatus. Uh, right, right. And that that's what I would say is what allows you to do that is your emotional brain, hmm. which unlikely, like earlier, we kind of didn't think too much about it, right? So we thought that understanding, like we all have similar set of sensory perception. Now, what gives us this dissimilarity is this emotional level of state or emotional state or the emotional part of the brain. Which is like the resting state you speak of? Not, well, linked, but not exactly. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. It's a different, conceptually a different thing, right? So it's kind of a thing like this, right? So you break a visual world into senses. Like we have the emotion on the other hand, you can think of basic emotions like fear, anger, um, sadness, uh, romantic, whatever mode, right? Uh, Now, earlier, the way people used to study emotion would again break this into these different emotions and want to study these emotions separately. Now, what I would argue is that thing is completely changing because I think emotion is again a basic sensory function. I would like provocatively put it that way. So emotion is something you require at a basic level to understand the senses, to get your regular visual perception. It it precedes. It precedes. It precedes the cognition of exactly so if you, it's a revisionist view in the because in the sense that you know earlier you would think of emotion as, as opposed a, to being the filter at the end it's yes the filter at the start filter at the start exactly yeah. so it's not like the, the higher order system that people thought it to be right. but it's rather is a lower order system much more lower order than even your basic visual function and that determines what you process how you process the intensity Absolutely. and we and have to understand that as a community we have to understand that to understand our visual scenes and this will probably guide us to that question that how do we add things sort of you know what your question was what was the operation yeah so i think that is the operation that's the operation we are missing no i completely think that that's a extremely critical point that you made about emotion at the lower order of things uh, which kind of connects all of our inquiries in this today's talk so to speak um anthropology history neuroscience we are aiming to understand a certain state of reality. But what sets that base emotional states? Now, in this hypothetical setup that I did of Pushkar as a historian and another counterpart, now they turn up at a scene, but there's like a base emotional cocktail that they bring to the table, don't they? Like a prior eye in this schema that we did. I, uh, I, I think part of it certainly comes through community stories again. Sure. Uh, Mm. where uh, from early childhood, the kinds of narratives you're exposed to Mm. will certainly be one part in the makeup of this base emotional state. Of course, there will be other things that come in, but those would be a lot more customized. Your family, the kinds of things you're exposed to visually, audially, and so on. But perhaps Sarpan has more to... But again, this seems like uh, one of those things which will have infinite variety. mm -hmm. It it just seems very difficult to, again, create a periodic table of this. uh, Very unlikely. Sorry, Arpan, carry on. No, I I was just saying, so, you know, in in, in a way, with a simple example, I can uh, sort of, you know, state what... um, So, for example, you have the stories of some um, ways to behave which we have been taught, like, uh, the let's say, take the Ram, the for norm, example. Norms. Norms, certain, you know, norms. Like, this is something we shouldn't do norms and should and customs, do. If yeah. we, like, you know, steal somebody's fruit from somebody's garden, that's that's not Which good. Which is what I roughly call value system. That's the value system, right? Yeah. Now, that has enabled us to 
like operate in the society in a certain way which the society think is a good way to be, operate with right and as it progresses what we call this as some kind of a social memory which guides our behaviors of what we do right so our way where should we be aggressive if we see somebody hitting other person for no seeming reason you would want to be also aggressive that's your sort of part of your social memory and stop that person right so you want to go for that right so these kind of things that how it develops is a very interesting question in terms of the neuroscience we are really getting interested in the question right now i mean we have not really got lot of headways into this i mean it's a very uh, it's, it's a good beginning or it's a good beginning <laughs> and and see i think if you think about let's say um certain neuro uh, developmental disorders like autism i mean the main issue is with the social memory somehow the social memory has been you know changed to a certain way that is out of the norm not really the person has changed it's a social memory that is changing in that person so we need to understand this way better then what we do and the first principle i think in doing so would be as i said emotion is a basic filter i think you said that word so in and that that i think would be the best i completely agree now i was just going to say i mean uh, right from the beginning one of the things we seem to agree on is non normative uh, forms of discourse uh, yes. forms are good places to start learning and uh, as opposed to scorning non normative behavior uh, it should be looked upon as an opportunity to understand something more about the world we live in yeah it's a great that, yeah. and that is exactly where i think community we've been throwing the word community around i think made it may need a little bit of uh, qualification as well here that community is the place where you can actually do it because it all all your emotional Uh, all, all, But Omji, what about around, what about the personal? That's what I was I was coming to. So, the the idea of the community comes from the family. You know, the very structure of the the base unit of the family. So all the questions But around emotion. But you could have emotion. multiple memberships. Sorry, right? You could have multiple memberships. You could belong to multiple communities. Now, obviously, there's one sense in which you could. Yeah. That is nothing wrong with it, because community is fungible. We seem to be like. constantly be sort of you know assuming that we want to aim at a certain ideal community while we talk about society because all our examples are from the family and the community because society is where you have created a certain set of norms community is more forgiving right as community is more informal i mean we look at our country here it is runs on an informal set of systems and beliefs partly because everyone believes that they are some part of a community or the other and they can create new communities so communities are more fungible they are more flexible but society of course at the same time it's it's almost like a parallel story it's like you know two stories running at the same time sometimes they intersect but sometimes they kind of you know don't and that is when we probably run into the problem of who is dominating what story where and in this formulation of yours obijit the society is sigma of several communities so, well that's a question for i guess i mean sociologists to i mean anthropologists don't deal with society <laughs> thankfully <laughs> they only deal with like you know community 
uh, hang out with people in chai shops and so on where is the personal for you the individual the individual i think is a radical european construct which got imported into our country so you, you think it's a construct again when we say individual we mean the self yeah in our non western society and context i think there is a notion of the self deeply ingrained doesn't necessarily mean that is the idea of the individual yeah. the idea of the individual comes at a very particular moment in europe right so the question is what derives what and the sense of the self could be derived from the collective well the sense of the self would be darwinian would be would be derived from the very idea of self preservation to begin with which doesn't necessarily translate into individual i mean there is a some kind of a a, a bridge to be crossed here uh with european intervention it did become an individual so for you the individual would be an alienated version of the self a relative to i would say because the think about the self in classical uh, uh mythology to you know all the stories and the proverbs that orpon was talking about like you know all the behavior stories for example that is an idea of a self preservation of the person there is an idea of personhood there is an idea of the self i think the individual is something that is quite squarely colonial as a historian pushkar i know you don't deal with this but as you picture history as you picture the past as a stream or whatever your imagery is uh, where does the individual or the personal or the person lie in that um, uh, so so what both at the level of agency at the level of imprint at the level of not to say that this brick was made by one person and that's an agent whatever like what do you have to say to that no i think abhijit is right in the sense uh, what did come from europe but now is firmly grounded and rooted here and so while we can debate where uh, but other individuals in europe or i know it's an european idea <laughs> but they are obviously making a universal claim right yeah that's a, i think the problem is the universality that is what probably like you know will bind us together in this argument uh yeah but the the bigger question is would we have arrived at a similar formulation had the europeans not introduced this sense of individuality uh i mean if you take human e- evolution to be teleological in a certain way we would all arrive i mean this is the great old positivist theory so the, of, so the occidental sure. historiography the occidental history mm-hmm. let's say let's go back to the period before we encounter the europeans how is that written is that is that individual centric community centric uh, where does this stand there well i mean history as a uh, you know discipline itself does not emerge till the 19th century i mean what you do have are uh, chronicles written uh, poems written you have eulogies you have all kinds of forms but which, they are commissioned works by yes, most palaces of, exactly. and kings and queens yeah and and so this kind of uh, objective history writing really is an uh, is a create even the folklore or the oral traditions that you spoke about right but but again those do have intention and interest at heart uh, they are not a, a professional historian today would like to believe that he uh, represents a completely unbiased position approximating the truth as much as he or she can whereas somebody writing 150 years ago uh, would have done it with an express intent of either glorifying something or uh, you know uh, highlighting something patronizing somebody uh, again i mean we think of these disciplines as timeless they've really come around in the past 150 years yeah that's a and, great point and they've also evolved enormously 
what was taught in a class of history in 1980 is absolutely not what's taught today. 1980. Yes, <laughs> and so I mean, think of it from 1980 onwards, the whole subaltern movement yeah. swept um, history yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And so you know, you learn to look at things in much more nuanced ways, in much more, uh, you know. Uh, are we are we going through a competitive phase of? history making history telling where different voices are trying to assume authorship and there are claims and counter claims uh, I, I i think the success of enabling all voices is that uh, you know there is no authentic voice left and so in that sense uh, and you think and you think it's that it's de decentering history completely i think the success and, and of postmodernism has that? been you welcome that well whether i welcome it or not it's going it's to happen happening <laughs> So that got me thinking. I feel like going into this information age that we live in, and we get a lot of information from social media, and the way a lot of people uh, like analyze facts in social media. It's as a historian, you would be like you know very excited to see so much amount of interest in general of people on history. Really? Uh, on the on the or, other hand, or no, I'm coming to that. I'm <laughs> coming the, the other side of things. So, so uh, which is this? Uh, is it really about this storytelling, like you know, sort of a dangerous, malleable storytelling shaping up? I mean, is there some like you know something we can retain in terms of as I was talking about aging, like older and wiser? Can we take this interest in the in a of general sort of you know uh, public of the history in a very positive sense? And you know, can we go? How do we use that as a as a positivist uh, sort of way? No, uh, riding. Uh... Uh, the tiger of public imagination is never a good thing. You can't tame yeah. it. Uh, yeah. You just go along for the ride. I want to argue all sides here now. Yes, we need a filter. We need filters. We need uh, otherwise it can go haywire, go south, and it is. But at the same time, but that's who, a political. To, that's yeah, a, right, that's a the, political who's gonna, move. Who's going to bail the cat? And why would one, as you, as Pushkar pointed out, the idea of authenticity is no longer authentic. In fact, authenticity itself is a highly Europeanized construct, right? Who is more authentic than the other? Whose narrative will dominate this conversation? Uh, no, so uh, so this is where I, you know, in minutes back we were talking about this, you know, people who are doing these eulogies or uh, sort of, you know, the court historians were not really Commission. historians. You right. were, they are glorifying or you know, kind of uh, putting yeah, somebody the, as a demon. They were copy editors and they were writing <laughs> essentially, right? <laughs> yeah. So now, how different are they compared to this general public imagination right now? No, uh, I mean, what you are saying is absolutely right. The question is. When disciplines emerge, there also emerges a set of uh, gatekeepers for disciplines. Uh, when sciences emerge, uh, there are scientific societies which act as gatekeepers. Yeah, because every discipline is also an institution. Right. So it has and institutional so, frameworks, incentives, and, and so, so on. If if the self critique of a discipline is so successful that it dismantles itself, <laughs> where are the gatekeepers? I mean, this is what postmodernity has brought to us. Yeah. Is. Uh, uh, basically a cultural relativism that is so successful that even the voice that proposes it needs to be questioned. Right, but that is the public demand. Right. It is happening because the public is more and more distrustful of essentializing and, and I think, expertise. But that's today. 
No, it I, has been happening. It just didn't happen I, I, overnight. I, I, I think the technologies have enabled it much That's faster. That's a great point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why don't we end with this quickly? Sure. Uh, what is the future? What's the future of how we think of the past? Very open-ended. What would you say to that? As as somebody who studies the past more than the future, I don't think we can be entirely predictive. But I think forms of knowledge making, uh, knowledge dissemination, and also truth seeking will fundamentally change in the next 20, 25 years. Because I think there is a general disillusionment with uh, the paradigms and systems we operate under now. I mean, everybody talks of interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary and so on, but it still has disciplines at the heart of it. I think there needs to be a completely new way of uh, structuring knowledge. Which is not disciplinary. Which is not necessary. I mean, just like the Gharana system in classical music is broken down in the past 20 years, I think we'll see it with other kinds of forms of knowledge too. That's sharp enough. Where are you on this, Arpan? So I think as we go along, there are two things for the future. I mean, you know, neuroscience-wise, I already articulated, but over, you know, the art of knowledge gathering, I think that itself will go through several definitions. Because uh, if you see the amount of text which we think of as classics now, And nowadays, even the amount of classics, I think, and modern classics, the number has increased like immensely, right? So how do we store this? And going forward another 80, 100 years, I will be producing, I mean, or several people will be producing more of this knowledge, which we call like, you know, we are in this knowledge creation business. So how do we curate this knowledge? And somebody down like 500 years from now, Will they still read about Plato or what kind of knowledge they are going to, like, you know, uh, consider as knowledge? So, so your concern here seems to be about increase in volume of, yes. the, of even quality knowledge. Yes. Uh, and and therefore, given that we are time-bound, spatial sort of creatures with other things to do, um, how would we make sense of this and how do would we do the sin talk on the knowledge right yeah. so th- how, that's that's something that i think and we your have to think and about your and your and your intuition is that there's likely to be a newer way of synthesizing i think we are things. going to, i mean we are going to see a lot of things being changed so already the one of the elements of knowledge creations like in the you know we start when we are at schools like how we teach our kids this has changed a lot i mean if you if you take into last you know even 3 4 years actually last decade the whole way the way probably last 100 years the way the schools used to operate are changing yeah and i think going into the future i I mean, 50 years from now, the way we think of schools that exist, like classroom kind of teaching, probably will not exist. That's what my gut feeling is. But I mean, maybe wrong. A lot of people will share that, Orpon. That's great. I think so. We'll end with you, Abhijit. What's happening? What lies ahead? I know you're not a futurologist, but what have you picked up in your visits? Well, for a start, I think anthropologists should start talking more to neuroscientists. I'm proposing (laughs) neuroanthropology or anthroponeurometry, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Partly because it's... But you're uh, creating a new newer sub-discipline which Pushkar will not be very happy with. No, but then we'll also have Pushkar on board because Pushkar <laughs> is the materials historian. And so without materials, materiality and history has a lot to do with anthropology. Now, the future is unfortunately to me at this point a little undefined. 
partly because structures of knowledge as we have we seem to be all congregated on this, this limited question of how we will think of the past right so the past will always feature in the way we think about uh the future of knowledge partly because uh, plato or not because just a, just as there's present in the past there's always the past in the present well i would say i would also want to add like you know there is one historian ironically will will be ending anthropologist ends with a historian jean uh, chesnu uh, who ha- had this book called pasts and futures he completely eliminated the present <laughs> partly because the past is is the is the gateway to the future yeah and And if the present is, is ever fleeting. Uh, the present is yeah, is the history of the present is always momentary, and then you can't grasp it. You can you wallow and and sort of you know it's it's pretty undefined. But going into the future, the past has its own image that will imp- have its imprint. I think, and that imprint we can already see through social media. Everyone is wanting to capture their found footage. I'm giving you banal images here. You know, the very idea that you want to go back to a found footage. from your uh, grandfather's uh, wedding photo that is a very interesting archaeological fact to me as well so this is a world which is in that sense less less institutionalized a little bit more way more informalized way i think way more informalized very personal interpersonal least, as well at least the appearance of that so a, a certain a certain distrust of establishment i think is good yeah. i don't know how this is going to fly yeah. uh, but uh, the question about uh because it's not it's not my idea it's it's something that is evidentiary it's something that is happening right in front of our eyes there are and as pushkar points out as new technology uh, evolves we will have the form uh, change the content as well and they will interact with each other so the future is more interactive if i were to sort of you know conclude on that note that's a good note on the song Thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Thanks for having you. us.